Leaders and diplomats from 197 countries have descended on Glasgow for a conference build as the last chance to save the planet. This afternoon, prime ministers and presidents gave their opening speeches. Tomorrow, the negotiations begin. I'll be speaking tonight to a climate expert about everything you need to know about COP26. In the second half of the show, I'll be joined by Ash Sarkar to discuss whether Twitter pylons are about to become illegal and a shocking story about racism at a top-flight cricket team. Today, Boris Johnson opened COP26. The UK Prime Minister welcomed representatives from almost 200 nation-states. They are collectively tasked with agreeing to measures that would limit global warming to only 1.5 degrees. This is how Johnson described the conference. I was there with, with many of you in Copenhagen 11 years ago when we acknowledged we had a problem. I was there in Paris six years ago when we agreed to net zero and to try to restrain the rise in the temperature of the planet to 1.5 degrees. And all those promises will be nothing but blah, 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 to coin a phrase. And the anger and the impatience of the world will be uncontainable unless we make this COP26 in Glasgow the moment when we get real about climate change. Boris Johnson was, of course, at both the Copenhagen COP and the Paris COP as then London mayor. Now PM, he suggested that while those conferences were about talk, this one can be about action. The blah, blah, blah line, in case you were wondering, was, was borrowed from Greta Thunberg. So is Boris Johnson right for a lowdown on everything COP26? I'm joined from Glasgow by Simon Lewis, Professor of Global Change Science at UCL. Um, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, to kick us off, is, is what Boris Johnson said correct? Is COP26 the moment the world collectively gets real about climate change? I hope so, but I'm not sure. The leader's speeches from the um, rich countries were full of strong words, but there were actually no additional new policies or announcements made. So it was pretty disappointing uh, start. And actually, the, the stage was taken uh, later by uh, Prime Minister Modi, who basically has taken the first day with his announcement that they'll go to net zero of all greenhouse gases by 2070. And I think also very importantly, get emissions down by a billion tons uh, of carbon dioxide by 2030. So some short term action there as well. And we're going to be sort of going through all the big players at, at COP26. Who's 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 pushing for what? First of all, I want you to take us through the process because it can seem to me slightly confusing what is being negotiated. Of course, countries come with their own non-binding commitments. They say, oh, we're willing to go to zero by 2050 and 78% by 2035 or whatever. That's not something negotiated. The countries come with those. So what's going to happen over the next 12 days? What, what, are, they, what are they arguing about? So, so you're right. Countries come with their pledges and every five years they're supposed to increase those was so important because this was the five years after Paris. And then in terms of the like the nitty-gritty of the negotiations, then there are a whole host of issues which different countries are trying to push. So India in particular and lots of the global south countries are pushing on loss and damage. So how are you going to pay for all the impacts of climate change from the cumulative historical emissions by the developed world? And of course, 
developed world only wants to have a dialogue on that, um, whereas countries want actual, uh, from the global south, want actual payments. So there's discussions around that. There's also the bits of the so-called Paris rule book, the agreement around Paris that still haven't been decided. And the really big ones there are on transparency. So will there be, uh, allow the UN to check what countries are doing and find out what's worked and what hasn't in terms of their pledges and also on, on timescales. So trying to reduce the timescales to make more action come more quickly. And then I think the final thing will be on carbon markets. So there's obviously a big push from the financial industry to get a big new carbon market going. And there's going to be detailed discussion around countries who will want big loopholes in that because they don't want to take climate action. And also those countries that do want a solid agreement to make sure there are no loopholes and that these markets actually reduce emissions rather than just be a way of making money. So that's the issues that are being negotiated. What do we end up with? Do we end up with, with a document that you know has a subheading on phasing out coal and a subheading on money to developing countries? What's, what's, what's the end product of all of this? Yeah, so the end product of those negotiations, if countries can all come to agreement, will be a document, a communicator, I think, but with, with some legal standing. And, and I think it's important to, to understand about the, the, the COP from now going forward is that not only have we got these uh, pledges from countries, nationally determined contributions, and the nitty-gritty of the negotiations, we've also got all these like side deals going on. And that's where Boris Johnson and the UK team really want to hope that they can start to bridge the gap between the emissions that have been been pledged and actually where we need to be in terms of 1.5 degrees C. So there'll be big announcements on forest tomorrow. There'll be another one on uh, finance and there's going to be another one on methane. And they're ways of getting emissions down that are sort of allied to but outside of the Paris Agreement. So, that, so side deals along the way as well. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, let's talk in more detail about the role different countries are playing, either in, in blocking or enabling climate action. On that front, leaders from the G20 countries met on Sunday in Rome, so a day before COP26 got going. At that summit, there was disappointment at a failure to come to any agreement on coal. The EU and UK had been pushing for a deal to phase out coal power entirely, Coal currently accounts for 44% of global CO2 emissions. This was Joe Biden explaining after the summit why he believed no agreement could be reached. This appointment relates to the fact that Russia and, uh, and, uh, and uh, including uh, not only Russia, but China basically didn't show up in terms of any commitments to deal with climate change. And there's a reason why people should be disappointed in that. Um, I, I found it disappointing myself. But what we did do, we passed a number of things here to end the, uh, the subsidization of coal. We made commitments here from across the board, all of us, in terms of what we're going to bring to uh, the G26. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, as that old bad, that old trite saying goes, the proof of the pudding will be in the eating. I think you're going to see we've made significant progress and uh, more has to be done. But uh, it's going to require us to uh, continue to focus on what China's not doing, what Russia's not doing, and what Saudi Arabia's not doing. That was Joe Biden blaming China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia for blocking agreements on coal. Simon, is that a fair explanation from, from Joe Biden as to who is, who's to blame for, for climate inaction? It's, it's the other guys who, who caused the problem. 
Yeah, well, everyone thinks it's the other guys who are causing the problem. As you ask uh, uh, most of the countries here at COP26, they'll say the big sticking point is that the United States has not stumped up the cash or the $100 billion commitment to the Global South that was pledged back in 2009 and still hasn't been delivered. And the big stumbling block is the U.S. hasn't come up with its fair share of all that cash. So everyone is blaming uh, each other. And there's you know, a big push to blame China. You know, it does have a, an, a net zero target and a, and a peaking date of before 2030. No countries are just not doing enough across the board. But the richest countries have the greatest cumulative historical emissions and are taking way more fair share than their fair share of the atmosphere in the finite carbon budget we've got. So should be cutting emissions much faster than they are. And, and, and that's what we need to, to really remember as we look at the kind of geopolitics of this. There are kind of three big kind of multi-factional groupings here of the income poor and the vulnerable countries and all the activists outside who are really calling for 1.5 degrees C, the funding to make the transition, and that this needs to be about equity. And then you've got the climate wreckers, the Saudi Arabias and the Russias of this world, the big exporters of fossil fuels, who are just trying to delay action as much as possible. And then you've got the really powerful countries around the EU and the US, and also China, who are looking to see uh, how they can have a transition to, to net zero but on their own terms. And that for the, the UK and the EU and the US is around mobilizing markets and mobilizing the private sector to do this rather than public funds. And then dragging everyone else along by um, saying you can only access our markets if you also reduce your emissions for your exports. Um, so there's a kind of complex, tense um, uh, maneuvering at play ar around those kind of three poles of attraction. Let's look at a speech from a leader from one of those first groups, so a country which is vulnerable to climate change and relatively low income, which is Barbados. Um, the Prime Minister of, of Barbados today spoke in that hall to the delegates at COP26 and said the following. The pandemic has taught us that national solutions to global problems do not work. We come to Glasgow with global ambition to save our people and to save our planet. But we now find three gaps. On mitigation, climate pledges or NDCs. Without more, we will leave the world on a pathway to 2.7 degrees. And with more, we are still likely to get to two degrees. These commitments made by some are based on technologies yet to be developed. And this is at best reckless and at worst, dangerous. On finance, we are $20 billion short of the 100 billion. And this commitment, even then, might only be met in 2023. On adaptation, adaptation finance remains only at 25%. Not the 50-50 split that was promised, nor needed, given the warming that is already taking place on this earth. Climate finance to frontline small island developing states declined by 25% in 2019. Failure to provide the critical finance and that of loss and damage is measured, my friends, 
in lives and livelihoods in our communities. This is immoral and it is unjust. If Glasgow is to deliver on the promises of Paris, it must close these three gaps. So I ask to you, what must we say to our people living on the front line in the Caribbean, in Africa, in Latin America, in the Pacific, when both ambition and regrettably some of the needed faces at Glasgow are not present? That was Mia Motali, the Prime Minister of, of Barbados, urging leaders to adopt more ambition than has yet been forthcoming. Simon, some of the issues you mentioned were repeated there. I want to focus on, on finance first, because I suppose this is what I find the most puzzling, because there are, there are loads of issues where I can see why it's difficult for a politician to fulfill their commitments or whatever. So Joe Biden, for example, he seems like personally he wouldn't mind you know, weaning the states off, weaning the United States off coal, but he's now getting blocked in Congress. There's all sorts of vested domestic interests that make that difficult. Stumping up $20 billion seems like that should be pretty easy, right? I, I don't really see why that wasn't just the first thing they agreed like six years ago and then just did it. Like we're, we're printing that much money every month. I just don't understand how this is still a stumbling block. And, that, you know, the, the Italy waited till the end of the, G8, uh, the G20 summit on Sunday before announcing that it would increase its, its contribution so it was relative to the proportion of it should be giving. And I, I just don't understand why uh, this is a stumbling block. In, in the same speech by uh, the Prime Minister of Barbados, um, she also said that there have been $25 trillion of quantitative easing, including $8 trillion just in the last two years over the COVID crisis. When something's important, we can get the money to do it. And I don't understand, and that's why I think a real frustration is that for all the warm words, there isn't really, you know, the appetite to really tackle this as an emergency like it is, uh, like they've tackled, you know, in, in, the, in the North, uh, the COVID crisis, and, and before that, the, the economic crisis in 2008. You know, the money is there if we really want to do this. Uh, and, I, and I just get very frustrated that, that there just seems to be so little movement. I suppose from the perspective of, I mean, you, you talked about, you know, an alliance between movements outside the conference and then smaller, poorer countries inside the conference or countries especially vulnerable to climate change. What, what leverage do they have? You know, what value is, does it have for the, the Prime Minister of Barbados to come to COP26? Is it just to get her voice heard on the world stage so that lots of people on television see that, you know, this is really going to affect lots of people around the world? Or do countries like Barbados have bargaining chips when they go into these negotiating rooms? Uh, I think the protests outside, they, you know, and, and the focus, that it, it sets the tone. But it also does much more than that with these uh, social movements in that, the, you know, the divestment campaigns have got, I think, now $39 trillion dollars out of fossil fuels. The cost of capital for fossil fuel companies is going up and for renewables is going down. And that's partly about social movements, making it very difficult for those companies, more difficult for those companies uh, to operate. And I think the, that those kind of movements of what's politically possible and what's politically acceptable change the terrain for these much less powerful countries within the negotiations. 
Uh, so it does, it does, it does help, and it does have an impact. Let's go back to Britain and the role of our prime minister. The UK, as as Boris Johnson likes to point out, has made some decent progress on phasing out coal. But a lingering embarrassment is that while we encourage developing countries to completely abandon coal, we haven't ruled out building a new coal mine in Cumbria. Speaking in Glasgow, Boris Johnson was challenged on that discrepancy by the BBC. When I was a kid, 80% of our power came from coal. When I was mayor of London, it was 40%. It's now 1%. Well, let's talk about coal. That's an amazing... Let's talk about coal. And I know everybody asks you this question, but you're going to China, you're going to India, you're going to the developing world saying phase out coal at the same time as not ruling out a new coal mine in Britain, a new coal mine in Britain. We started the Industrial Revolution. We should have closed the I've just the given you the statistics before you have ah, a, But why you don't you a, just say yeah. we're, gonna, we're not well, going to open them? I've just given you statistics. Why don't we be clear on we, the coal we mine? Have, we have the Chinese will say, we can't take this guy seriously. Well, sorry, the, the, what, they, what absolutely everybody finds incontrovertible is the progress the UK has already made. No, I'm sorry to bang on about the no, coal, sorry. but the point is you kind of, you know, it makes you look... No, I, 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 it makes you look a little bit weaselly not answering the coal question because they're going to go and you're talking about no, sorry, coal. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I've answered the coal question and, and they understand that. Directly. And, and let me say, tell you directly. Okay. We are, we are, yes we or are, no on the coal mine? You personally, what do you reckon? I, I'm not in favour of, of more coal, let's be absolutely clear, but it's not a decision for me. It's a decision for local uh, planning authorities. I think lots of people watching that will think you're prime minister. Probably you, you can pass some kind of legislation to take that out of the hands of, of the local planning authorities. But Simon, how, how significant is that? This was the first time that Boris Johnson has said he personally doesn't want any new coal in, in the UK. People have been saying this is a bit of a stumbling block to, to the UK, you know, trying to show any moral leadership on this question, if that's at all appropriate, given you know, how much historic responsibility we have for all of this anyway. But do you see that as in any way a game changer, that, that answer there today? It shows the pressure is under, but I, I don't think it's a game changer because we need to look at the, the bigger picture here. And that is countries like the UK done a good job on reducing coal use uh, for electricity production. They haven't done much on anything else. And crucially, they're still producing fossil fuels, still licensing this new coal mine. More importantly, the Cambo oil field off Shetland. And other countries are doing the same. So the United States doing exactly the same. On the one hand, trying to cut emissions. On the other hand, producing fossil fuels for export and licensing new fossil fuels. Same with Norway. Same with Australia. So countries have to stop, legislate to stop producing fossil fuels for export while going hand in hand with investing in the alternatives. Otherwise, we're just never going to get out of this uh, climate crisis. The projections are that we're going to produce twice as much fossil fuels as we should be burning by 2030. So if we don't get these fossil fuel uh, production down, then we won't be able to solve it because once it's sold, it'll get burned somewhere. And that, that you know, leave it in the ground argument, I suppose, that you're making. In fact, I remember seeing you at sort of previous climate protests sort of like a decade ago. Um, Leave it in the ground was a big slogan of of, of of those protests. Is that something that's present at these these conferences? Are there people arguing just say just stop digging up the, the goddamn stuff, stop digging it up and exporting it and and selling it? Is 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 that a demand that's being made at COP twenty six? It's 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 um it's not. 
people talk about because the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change rules are that you count your domestic emissions. So all those emissions that occur within your territory, what you're producing for export counts for somebody else. And that's one of the kind of problems of this architecture that we've got. I mean, it makes sense in the fact that your national laws cover your national territory. But you really need to yeah, pull in that um, production of fossil fuels into the equation as well. Otherwise, everyone's trying to export it to everyone else and we can't get out of this problem. That's really interesting. Um, Simon Lewis, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening from COP26. I should have made that clear in the introduction that you are in in the conference building, which is why we can see people walking walking behind you every now and again. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. Interesting as always. In Well, it is enjoy the rest of the, the, the conference, the right terms. In any case, I, I hope you find it very interesting. <laughs> I'm yeah, I'm going to go get a beer now. Perfect. Ash, um, I've taken longer to bring you in than I normally would on a Monday night show. Um, what are your, your your thoughts on what Simon said? What's, what's your take on, on COP26? So far, Boris Johnson made a bunch of James Bond puns in his opening speech. I think Boris Johnson's attitude, which is cavalier and clownish, is emblematic of how he has approached the issue of climate change throughout his career. So I don't think that we should be looking uh, to him for a signal of where this government should be going, where we should be looking are where is where the pressure is coming from. So looking at uh, the youth protesters who are out looking at the pressure being applied by smaller and more vulnerable countries. Because Boris Johnson fundamentally, I think at his heart, is still something of um, a climate sceptic. Not in that he denies the science, but simply he will only take this issue seriously if it's a matter of political urgency. I think another thing to think about when you're trying to judge what comes out of this conference and whether or not it's a success or a failure is that when it comes to climate change, uh, there is not the same amount of interpretive wiggle room as there is with other issues, for instance. So when we're looking at politics, we normally look at compromise and you go, if the compromise is more in one direction than the other, that means that that side can count it as a win. With climate change, because emissions are cumulative, it is pretty unforgiving. So even if you've got a compromise which is more in the direction of decarbonisation, if it is not enough, if it is too slow, it means that we are still losing. We are losing in terms of rising sea levels, we're losing in terms of the increased frequency of extreme weather events, and we're losing in terms of the displacement of people and the loss of human life. So I think we've got to be pretty strict and unforgiving in the tenor of our own coverage of COP26, because you can see it in the tone being struck by the political lobby. This is just an extension of diplomatic game playing. For them, they're treating it almost the same way as they cover Brexit, which is who's up, who's down. What's at stake, I think, can get lost in that analysis of personalities and political gameplay. So we really have to keep our eyes on the prize, which is a 1.5 degree increase in global temperature changes, which is already pretty bad. In terms of uh, what's being projected from the commitments that have been already made going into this COP, we're looking at 2.7 degree change in global temperatures, which is, of course, catastrophic. So we've already been sold out going in. Now it's about the pressure that's being applied within and outside of that conference. Mm. No, I think that's that's an important point. And I think, I suppose the analogy I'd use, you say we shouldn't cover this as if it's like Brexit. So who's up and who's down? What we should cover it as and, and what we should hold, you know, the kind of standards we should be holding the government up to is is more like coronavirus. So what you often hear from from Boris Johnson or, or anyone in, in the government is say, we're doing lots. We're doing all of these things. 
we're doing XYZ, we've started to phase out coal, we're investing a bit in green energy here and green energy there. Now, in March 2020, I mean, the government actually did. <laughs> this is why that was so catastrophic, their handling of it. But a, a government could honestly stand up. Our government could honestly stand up and say, look, what we've done is already unprecedented. We've asked people to work from home. We've never done that before. We've um, encouraged people to... Actually, they didn't encourage people to wear masks. We've, we've encouraged people to only meet up with people if, if they really need to. We've offered up some cash to businesses to close. All of those things you know, in the abstract, were, were fairly big moves for any government. But what we were judging them against wasn't how significant does this action look compared to past action? It was, is it going to prevent the catastrophe, which is COVID-19? And then ultimately, you know, that was the standard we held them to. They brought in a lockdown. We need something of that scale right now. Now, obviously, I'm not saying we, we want a lockdown, but I'm saying it needs to be the case that we are pushing as much money into this as we possibly can, or as much money as is needed, frankly, not as, not as much as we can, just as much as is needed, and then we'll work out how to pay for it afterwards. Because the issue here is we are sleepwalking towards catastrophe. And while Britain is by no means you know, the worst offender right now in this period of time, obviously historically disastrous, but right now in this period of time, we are doing a bunch of stuff. Doing a bunch of stuff isn't good enough when what you're facing is catastrophe. You need to do enough and we're not doing enough. Let's go to our next story, COP-related, but a little bit sillier. With almost 200 nations attending, thousands of diplomats meeting, and any number of complex technical issues to be negotiated, COP26 isn't easy for any media organization to cover. However, genuine complexity doesn't provide an excuse for a mistake made by US giant CNN this week. That's because in their COP26 coverage, they fell at the first hurdle. They set up shop in the wrong city. Their star host, Wolf Blitzer, tweeted this morning, I'm now reporting from Edinburgh in Scotland, where 20,000 world leaders and delegates have gathered for the COP26 Climate Summit. COP, by the way, stands for Conference of the Parties. It's the 26th time they have gathered to discuss and take action on this critical issue. Well, thank you, Wolf Blitzer, for clarifying what COP means. Unfortunately, you should have focused on where it was taking place instead of what the acronym stood for. Ash, is there going to be an intern going, having a real nightmare today because they, they booked studio space 50 miles away from where the conference was, was actually taking place? I mean, it's a pretty hard mistake to make <laughs> because people have been referring to COP conferences by their host city for ages now. So we know it as the Paris Climate Accords. We talk about Copenhagen. We know it by the cities. And Glasgow sounds very different. It is spelt very differently. It is pronounced very differently from Edinburgh. So I'm trying to work out, was this a genuine mistake, which is so boneheaded that it's frankly embarrassing that an organization the size of CNN could conceivably make it, that nobody went, hang on, are you sure it's in Edinburgh and not the other big city that's in Scotland. Um, or maybe was it deliberate? It was a sense of going, okay, space, accommodation, all this stuff's at a premium in Glasgow at the moment. Edinburgh, a bit more empty, not so far. We can shuttle guests there and back. Enough for us to get content out of it. And we get the big castle in the background. I'm trying to work out if this was actually a mistake or not, because the mistake would be so stupid as 
to seriously stretch my credibility. <laughs> oh, sorry, my, my credulity, not credibility. Although CNN have lost that too. Yeah, yours, yours is safely intact, Ash. Yeah, I mean, I, sp- I suppose their defense would be, yeah, there was a shortage of space in Glasgow, but you'd have thought if they made a decision on that basis. Also, they said Joe Biden flew into Edinburgh, apparently. So they wanted to be there, you know, when the, when the plane landed. I don't know. But you'd have thought they would then be quite careful in what tweets they sent out to make it, you know, if we're going to set up shop in Edinburgh, we, may, we better make it really goddamn clear that we know the conference is in a different city. And he definitely I mean, failed this morning. That's how I got rinsed on Twitter. The thing, the thing you've got to understand is that Americans are dealing with a much vaster country back home, all right? The distance between Glasgow and Edinburgh is what they drive for a Taco Bell. And that's one of the reasons why their emissions are so high. So I genuinely think that there is a chance that Americans were like, uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow are kind of the same, kind of the same place. Look at it on a map. That's crazy. That's like my kid's school. And we're just like, fuck it. I don't know. Let's go to our next story. Details have emerged about the government's planned online harms bill, a new law intended to curb abuse and misinformation online. According to The Times, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport has accepted recommendations from the Law Commission that the characterization of criminal online abuse should, in the bill, be based on the likely psychological harm that online messages might cause to their victims. This would be a shift from current law, which defines illegal online speech as based on what messages actually contain. So what's in the message, not the effect they might have. So currently, it would include things like an indecent or grossly offensive content. It would be a dramatic change. What's more, causing psychological damage will not be the only new offence in the online harms bill. The Times report... A new offence of threatening communications will target messages and social media posts that contain threats of serious harm. It would be an offence where somebody intends a victim to fear the threat will be carried out. A knowingly false communication offence will be created that will criminalise those who send or post a message they know to be false with the intention to cause emotional, psychological or physical harm to the likely audience. Government sources gave the example of anti-vaxxers spreading false information that they know to be untrue. The new offences will include so-called pylons, where a number of individuals join others in sending harassing messages to a victim on social media. Lots of different kinds of of online communication there, which is potentially going to be criminalised. Misinformation, causing harm, pylons... Ash, what do you make of this? This is not, you know, this is briefings to the Times. It's obviously, they haven't published the bill. But is is it time to send Twitter trolls to jail and criminalize pylons? I've been saying for a long time, it's time to lock up Michael Walker. Your reign of terror online has gone on long enough. It's time you go to real jail, not just Twitter jail. I tweet a lot less than I used to. It's actually made my life much better, I recommend it. But you're, yeah, not, I've seen your all Not that you need to tweet Walker. less, Ash. When it comes to the pylon stuff, this is going to be impossible to legislate and even more difficult to enforce. Maybe what it does is that it forces Twitter into rejigging its algorithm. So it directs people away from quote tweets, which is what it sort of shifted people towards and back into replies. Because this matter of what is a pylon, what it means to participate in it, and how you prove the intention is very, very tricky indeed. Because yes, you do have cases where you've got organized brigading, all right, where on a different platform, you have trolls organized to harass, abuse, and threaten one individual or a set of individuals. 
something that's happened to me. And it's fairly easy to see where that's been the case. All right. There is a digital footprint which is left by people. And so you can kind of tell when you've been a victim of that level of coordination. And obviously, social media platforms should be doing more to stop that from happening. All right. That's a really bad use of the platform. But a pylon where you get accused of participating in a pylon, if you quote tweet in response to somebody's quote tweeted you first, you've got MPs claiming that they're being bullied when people are quite politely saying, hey, why did you vote against an amendment which would have stopped you know, raw sewage being pumped into our rivers? Uh, what it means to be the victim of a pylon is unconscionably broad. And I think there's room for an awful lot of cynical misuse of that. You know, we see people who tend to be protected to some degree by being part of the establishment, whether they're politicians or whether they're journalists, framing criticism and sometimes, you know, lighthearted insults as abuse, harassment, and a pylon. And so I wouldn't want to see that outlawed far from it. I think that that's actually a sign of a healthy and participative political discussion where all parties can speak back to each other. So I think that this would be a very bad law if it actually came into effect. I'm skeptical of the ability to draft this as a piece of legislation for it to be effectively enforced. But even if it was just one of those laws which is sort of chucked into uh, the atmosphere without any real expectation of there being prosecutions under it, I think that this could have a real effect on how social media platforms function, how they shape their own algorithms. And I think that it would have a stifling and censoring impact on freedom of speech. Given its implications for free speech, one might have assumed this bill, the Online Harms Bill, would be subject to widespread political scrutiny and debate. However, it appears that may not be the case. In the wake of the tragic death of David Amos, Keir Starmer made the following pledge at PMQs. It's three years since the government promised an online safety bill, but it's not yet before the House. Meanwhile, the damage caused by harmful content online is worse than ever. So will the Prime Minister build on the desire shown by this House on Monday to get things done and commit to bring forward the second reading of the online safety bill by the end of this calendar year? If he does, we'll support it. What we're doing is ensuring that we crack down on uh, companies that promote illegal and, uh, and dangerous content and we'll be uh, toughening up uh, those provisions. But Mr Speaker, what we are also going to do is ensure that uh, the online safety bill does complete uh, its, uh, its stages uh, before this House, uh, before, uh, before Christmas. And I'm delighted, uh, or rather that we do bring, forward, uh, the, uh, bring it forward before Christmas in the way, that he, uh, the way that he suggests. And I'm delighted, Mr Speaker, that he is uh, offering his support. And, uh, and we, we look forward to that. Really bizarre. You'll, you'll note that what we've just told you about the online harms bill, that's not even official information. That's what's been briefed to the Times. And that was only briefed today, right? And so, so weeks ago, Keir Starmer was saying, I'm going to vote for a bill or that you're going to introduce before I have any idea whatsoever is in it. This isn't like a, a bill about what day the bins get collected. This is, this is quite significant because it's about criminalizing speech. It's about, you know, determining what part of, of political discourse is and is not legitimate. So you'd have thought he'd at least, you know, forensic Keir Starmer would at least want to read the bill before committing to vote for it. Ash, what's going on here? Clearly, you know, a political decision was, was made that this is not an argument Labour want to have. So 
the Tories now have a blank check, put whatever they want in that bill. I think that there's two core audiences that Keir Starmer is speaking to when he's giving his unqualified support to a bill which has, I think, a severe risk of curtailing uh, lawful political expression. Two audiences that he's talking to. The first audience, I would say, is a kind of amorphous network of concerned parents who've got concerns about the internet's impact on their kids, but don't really know how to deal with it. And those concerns, I think, are legitimate, particularly thinking about the impact that Instagram has been having on uh, teenagers and body dysmorphia. This is something which has come out with the leaks contained within the Facebook papers and the testimony of Francis is it Horgan? Is that how I pronounce her name? Or is it Horn? It's one of those names I've only ever read. I'm so sorry. But Facebook has been aware of the detrimental mental health impacts associated with their apps. And essentially, they didn't want to do anything about it because it could have risked even a smidgen of profit. So I think that, you know, those concerns that parents have are legitimate. I just think that this very broad sweeping bill, which I think seeks to allay those fears without getting into the core problems, which is how do we have democratic oversight of these social media platforms that we've come to rely on so much is is, is mistaken and misleading. So that's audience one. Audience two is the culture that exists in and around Westminster where you've got a lot of journalists and a lot of politicians with a highly inflated sense of self who really do think that acting them is a form of attempted murder, who are incredibly thin-skinned, who don't see their own action in demonizing individuals and particularly marginalized communities as being in the same level or order of harm as somebody calling them bald on the internet. And I think that he's trying to, you know, get in quite nicely with these columnists too. I think, Michael, me and you have had some run-ins with as well, where we've had, you know, completely fatuous allegations of bullying simply because we've done things like stand up for our organization and point out where we've been treated unfairly. And these are the kind of people that Keir Starmer is speaking to, people who are exceptionally thin-skinned and don't want freedom of speech or indeed a marketplace of ideas. What they want is a stranglehold on the public discourse where they get to talk from the top of the mountain and no one gets to talk back. Mm. I mean, it's also another one of those those situations where I think a focus group has told Keir Starmer that we want the political parties to come together. There's too much disagreement. And so he says, oh, I'll do what they want. I'll stand up and say I agree with the government, which is, which is not what you should do. <laughs> people think he plays politics because he plays politics. If you disagree on, you know, on, on issues of, of substance, people, people won't think that. It's things like saying, oh, actually, let's close the schools when Boris Johnson has already briefed. They're going to close the schools and not doing it before that. That, that. That's the kind of thing that makes people feel like you stand for nothing. Also, maybe pledging stuff and then breaking all of those pledges within a year. Also, that makes people feel like you're opportunistic and, and don't stand for anything. So the response to that isn't to say, oh, no, look, I'm not opportunistic. I don't play politics. Actually, I agree with whatever the government's going to do, even though I haven't read it already. That's, that's not the correct response. Let's go to our final story. An investigation by a top English cricket team into alleged racism in the club has exonerated an alleged abuser after judging that the term packy is just ordinary banter. It's an extraordinary finding from a team in England's top league and the details only make it worse. This is the story as written up on the ESPN cricket info site. They write... At least one Yorkshire player admitted to regularly using the term 
the P word, when talking to Azim Rafiq. But he was cleared of wrongdoing on the basis that it was perceived as friendly, good-natured banter between the two players. The player also admitted to telling other people, don't talk to him, he's a P word, asking, is that your uncle, when they saw bearded Asian men and saying, does your dad own those, in reference to corner shops. Despite admitting recalling that Rafiq broke down in tears at one point, the player insisted he had no idea he was causing offence and would have stopped if Rafiq had asked. The individual concerned is a current senior player at the club. Now, it really is an extraordinary story. So ESPN, that's the site we're, we're getting this from, report that lawyers who were charged with collecting evidence for the report found comments aimed at Rafiq had been, and I quote, capable of creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or offensive environment and they accepted Rafiq's evidence that he was offended, degraded or humiliated. So those were the, the lawyers who were collecting evidence for this internal report, internal to, to, to the cricket club. But the panel, who were charged with making conclusions and recommendations, including, you know, would anyone be, be disciplined for this, um, they disagreed. That panel included a non-executive member of the Yorkshire board. Um, so according to ESPN, the panel's conclusion state, the panel does not accept that Azim was offended by the other players' comments, either at the time they were made or subsequently. They go on to say that in the context of banter between friends, Rafiq might be expected to take such comments in the spirit in which they were intended, i.e. good-natured banter between friends. So it was not reasonable for Azim to have been offended by the other player directing equally offensive or derogatory comments back at him in the same spirit of friendly banter. Now, this whole comments back at him, elsewhere in the story, they said, oh, this guy, he's, he's, clearly, he's clearly fine with racial epithets because he called another player a, a Zimbo. Now, I'd never heard that term before for someone who's from... Zimbabwe. Apparently, as far as I understand from, from the commentary, that's similar to saying an Aussie. It's not similar to saying a Paki, right? But in any case, saying that this is just banter is ridiculous. Ash, what's your take on, on what the hell is going on here? I mean, this is like the anti-grave Richard Keyes sexism row all over again, when clearly what you have is a very toxic culture in which bigotry is you know, has the blind eye turned to it because it's seen as part of the banter and part of the relationship between men. And that bigotry, even though it's coded as humor, actually has hugely detrimental impacts on people who are targets of it, whether that's sexism, whether that's homophobia, or whether that's indeed racism. And so the fact that it's so central to the culture in and around sports, I think is very depressing. And what you would have hoped is that, uh, you know, Yorkshire County Cricket Club would have shown some leadership and said, you know what, we need to wipe the slate clean. We need to say no more of this. We want to have a cultural change. We're clearly a diverse club where people, you know, come from all sorts of different backgrounds and they need to feel welcome. And that is, is a real failure of leadership on, on the part of this panel. And the fact that they deviated, I think, so uh, dramatically from the findings of the investigation team and the lawyers, I think, also tells you that perhaps that they've got a particular interest in in drawing a veil over this culture rather than disinfecting it with with sunlight and getting it out in the open, tackling it head on and saying no more of this. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was actually more going on onto the surface, perhaps more people implicated in various forms of sexist or racist or indeed homophobic behavior. And that's why there's an attempt to brush this all off 
as friendly banter. And I just want to say this thing about friendly banter because you know what, Michael, I'm I'm not in the business of trying to police how friends relate to each other. Okay. Everyone's got different levels of tolerance for humor, which sort of treads these lines of offensiveness. That's going to differ from friendship group to friendship group. And that's perfectly fine. But even within the context of friendly banter, which involves a bit of teasing, a bit of joshing, a bit of making fun of someone, I could say, for instance, your hair makes you look like Tweety Pie. That would not give you the right to call me a packy. All right. These are not of the same order. And this whole business of, well, he would have been expected uh, to take this in the spirit of friendly banter and the spirit in which it's offered. Well, I think that anytime you mobilize a slur against someone, you have to be pretty damn certain of how they're going to take it. And if they are indeed driven to tears, as this cricket player was, I think that's the point where you go, no matter how I thought I meant this. It was clearly received in a different way. That is my fuck up. Maybe I won't go around calling people slurs all the time in the interest of cracking a joke. But the fact is that didn't happen, right? That level of upset and the tears went ignored. And indeed, uh, it seems that there was a pattern of these kind of jokes being made uh, against this one particular South Asian cricket player. So I think that tells you something about how toxic the culture is. And the stuff about friendly banter is just a flimsy excuse for why it is people have turned a blind eye to it for so long. I mean, it's also the victim blaming in this story is just maddening. The panel, not only did they say it's banned between friends, but they said Rafiq might be expected to take such comments in the spirit in which they were intended, i.e. good-natured banter between friends. So it's basically saying if he was offended, not, you know, that's completely his fault. And actually it's pretty unreasonable unre- that he even, he even got offended. Maybe he should just grow some thicker skin. Maybe the the unnamed player who abused him has has now been dragged through the mud just because he's too overly sensitive. It seems extraordinary that that would ever get written down. You know, I can imagine that being said in a boardroom by some sort of racist reactionary people in the higher echelons of a of a cricket club. But actually thinking that's a sort of legitimate thing to to write in an official report does kind of beg a belief. I assume I know that the English Cricket League or the English Cricket Board are going to come in and sort of have a look at this. Do you imagine this will be overturned, Ash? Well, I think that if they've got any sense of PR self-preservation, then it will be overturned because it is, as you say, so egregiously victim-blaming that it, it can't really stand up in the court of public opinion, and rightly so. But one of the things I want to say is that we have a tremendously contradictory attitude towards racism in this country. Because on the one hand, we have this idea that what racism is, is when somebody says a slur. So then if you don't say the slur, regularly, whether that's Paki or the N-word or something else, then you go, well, I couldn't possibly be racist. I just don't want my daughter to marry a Muslim. But that's the one sort of end of it, which is unless you say the slur, you know, you're not racist. And then on the other hand, we actually have a remarkably high tolerance for when people do come out and say racist slurs. You had Jeremy Clarkson being caught on camera using the N-word for a version of eeny, meeny, miny, mo that I had never heard in my life, which involved saying the N-word. You had Carol Thatcher, uh, Margaret Thatcher's daughter, I think when doing some of the coverage uh, for Wimbledon, allegedly referring to a tennis player of color as a, 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 a gollywog. Um, there is a t- tremendously high threshold for this kind of behavior because then when it comes out, particularly when it comes out that this language was tolerated within quite elite spaces, people start bending over backwards to start talking about how within that context, it was okay. 
it wasn't okay. It absolutely wasn't okay. And if it was okay, then you wouldn't have reduced someone to tears in the first place. If it you know, was okay, then you wouldn't have people saying, why the hell is Jeremy Clarkson saying the N-word? You wouldn't have said people, you know, people decrying Carol Thatcher for her use of the word gollywog. But that goes right to the heart, I think, of this, I think, very duplicitous understanding of racism that we have in this country. One is we say it's all about the slurs. We also have hypersensitivity when it comes to certain forms of language. And then on the other hand, when the slurs do actually come out, we go, oh, it was just banter. It was fine. There was no, you know, real malicious intent behind it. I don't actually care what your intent was if you're saying the word packy, unless you are literally South Asian and you're one of those people who thinks that it should be reclaimed. Personally, I don't think it should, but that's just a difference of opinion. Unless you're South Asian, you think it should be reclaimed. It's not for you to say, ever. Zero context. Apart from if you're quoting it in the context of telling a new story about racism where someone said it. Um, let's wrap up there obviously we, we led tonight's show with cop 26 we will be probably leading a lot of our our shows over the next couple of weeks with cop 26 we will have uh, members of the navara team up there aaron will be producing some films from glasgow speaking to uh, lots of experts and activists and politicians up there so do make sure you you subscribe to get all the up-to-date coverage of cop 26 which i am sure you are gagging for i mean it's, it's a historic event it's genuinely you know, it's an incredibly big deal. It's hard to over, it's hard to to overstate it. Ash Saka, a pleasure as always to be joined by you and Musa on a Monday. Well, you know that you've got custody of us on Friday as well, when I will be covering for Aaron, who is at COP. So I'll be sandwiching your week, Michael. I hope that's okay with you. One final super chat. We're going to go to AAJ. Thanks, NM, for covering this story. Didn't see it covered much elsewhere. I'm of Pakistani descent and have been called the P word when young, and it's hugely dehumanizing and upsetting. Really important comment. Thank you so much for you know for for, for sharing that. I should say I was I was reading that comment, which meant I wasn't listening to the end of what Ash said. But I am incredibly excited that Ash is going to be sandwiching my week and back here on a Friday. For now, um, we'll be back on Wednesday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.